Thanks, Reese, for leading us in worship today. It's always important, especially when you're talking about money, to remember who God is and what he's like, that he's a generous and kind God. That's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about cold, hard cash and contentment. And sometimes, you know, we can go through life and never be contented with what we've been given. So first message that we talked about was actually about contentment and what that actually means and what it actually takes. Second message, we talked about how sometimes debt can sabotage contentment. You can get into the position where you, you, know, you try to get something because, through debt, and then it just messes everything up. So we talked about that. Last week, we talked about finding peace with your money. From those little olive branch here, you having peace with your money. Today, kind of the underlying theme, it's not the text, not the topic of the message, but the underlying theme is when it's all over, I mean, and I could, this could be me at some point, when it's all over, what do you want people to say about you? Because if you want them to see you as a generous person who made a difference in the world, well, you actually have to do that, right? Or they're going to have to get up there and lie in front of everybody. So to start off today, what I would like to do is I'd like you to get this little, your wallet, whatever it is you put your credit cards in, your cash in, and so on, and hold it up like this, okay, in the form of kind of a little temple. Now, you can speak softly to it and kiss it, you know, caress it, you know, and, and so on. You can do whatever you want, but just hold it in your hands. This is the temple of the 21st century God of Mammon. In fact, it was the temple of the 19th century God and the 20th century God. Back as far as anybody can remember, this has been the God, the most worshipped God, most worshipped idol on the planet. Now, when you think of idolatry, you know, don't miss my starting point here, you know, because you know, I'm not talking, saying that money is bad. You know, God is a God of abundance, you know, not of cheapness and austerity. But one thing he's very clear about, and that is that there are to be no other gods before him, including the God Mammon who lives in this little temple, this little, this little wallet God. Idolatry is not about burning, you know, incense to statues. It's about making something good. And money is a good thing. It's just a means of exchange, but it can potentially be a good thing. Mammon is what Jesus calls this. And what happens is that we let it into our hearts, and it hardens our hearts, and it has the possibility that it can actually ruin our lives. So, you know, it can give us this false sense of that we're secure and that we're successful and that our life has meaning when that's really not true of us. And because of all the power that's invested in this little strip of leather, leather you know, the, the wallet got, it's very difficult for people to lose control of it or to hand over control of it, okay? So what I want you to do to play along is I want you to take the wallet God, take this little temple, and if you're with somebody else and you're watching this, just, you know, hand it over to them, okay? Just give it to them for just a minute. And now we're going to receive the online offering that you've always wanted to give. <laughs> Actually, no, we're not going to do that. So if you took the wallet from somebody, give it back, okay? Give it back. Like, give it back now. Now, Paul closes this letter to the Philippians by basically telling them how to live with sanity in a world of wallet worshipers. And here's what I know. Here's what I know. If you worship cold, hard cash like the rest of the world does, you will not find peace. That is not the way to find contentment. If, on the other hand, you hand you know, the wallet God power over to the one who controls everything, something really deep happens inside, and it's called generosity. 
It's called freedom. And God will set you free in ways that you've never been free before in your life. Now, what's interesting about this passage that Paul writes here is that it's filled with language that you would see, you know, uh, in the Wall Street Journal or something like that because it's investment talk, and he's talking about them investing in him. Now, this is the question. I mean, have you ever invested any money? To invest money basically means that you delay, delay gratification to serve a better purpose. And investing takes faith. You know, when you think about your future, when you think about, you know, things that you'd like to do and, and places you'd like to go and so on, you put your faith in an institution when you hand your money over to them that it's actually going to be a better, it's actually going to be better because you invested. Now, I want you to try this exercise now, okay? We talked about the wallet God and so on. What I want you to do is just close your eyes for a minute and imagine the person who handles your money, okay? The, the investment person in your life. Just imagine their face. And now replace their faith, their face with Jesus' face. And imagine him saying to you, would you let me be your investment guru? Will you let me show you how to invest your money? Because you see, that's what Jesus says. He says this in terms of, in the records of his life, you know, are, are filled with this kind of talk. He says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's talking about investment where moth and rust do not corrupt, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. That's what you'll be thinking about. He says, give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus told a story that a lot of people could relate to in our culture, a guy who made it big, you know, had, you know, a farm that produced a lot of crops and so on. And he, what he did was he was trying to figure out, how can I store this up for myself? How can I build bigger barns? How can I increase my investment portfolio? And Jesus said, you're full because you're not thinking about the future. You're not thinking about the fact that one day your name is going to be on the coffin and on the gravestone. Now, another surprising word that Jesus uh, chooses to use in re reference to money is the word steward. You know what a steward is, right? It's not, you know, just somebody who helps you on a plane. Uh, it's, it's an, you know, it means that God, in this case, God owns what we have and we manage. And that's the imagery that Jesus uses. He uses an investment story about this king that goes on a trip and, and gives all of his money to three stewards, three servants, who then go out and invest his money. Now, you think about it. if you're an investment counselor and you take the money that's been handed to you and you go and do whatever you want with it, you know, you go buy a really cool boat or, you know, buy braces for your kids or do something like that. What's that called? It's called stealing because it doesn't belong to you. And Jesus' assumption in all of his parables about investment and about stewards is that God made everything. God is sovereign over everything. God owns everything and he's entrusted it to us as his managers. Stewardship is about managing money. So when you're investing, you're looking toward the future, and there comes a point where, yeah, it may feel a little bit of a pinch now because you're investing, but there comes a point where you say, man, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I invested in the future. Now, what does God want us to do as managers? Well, he wants us to enjoy it, right? He's a good dad. He loves to give us good gifts. He wants us to take good care of what he's given us, to use wisdom and use restraint. But he also wants to grow our hearts in the process of giving us these gifts. And he wants us to love him 
and to love others with it. So here's the bottom line. God owns, we manage, and we manage in a way that makes us good stewards. That's what a stewardship actually is. Now, the scary part of this is that there's apparently no accountability. Like he doesn't send a big angel to peer over the clouds, you know, and keep records in terms of, you know, how you spent, although he knows because he knows everything. So it looks like nobody's keeping an account of this stuff. And so we sometimes think, well, I can just spend it however I want and, and there's no big deal. Well, there is the final accountability, right? And that brings us to uh, the end of this letter. Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Let me just remind you a little bit about these people. First, they were ground-level investors. You've heard of an IPO, initial public offering, you know, when somebody offers stock to the public and so on. So they were there at the IPO for the church, especially in Philippi and in Macedonia and then, of course, in the world. So they, they were the immediate, uh, immediate people that were involved in actually investing in Paul. And they didn't just throw pennies. They invested deeply. And it might not seem like a lot of money to us, but they invested deeply. This is what Paul says. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, that's Philippi, was in Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. In other words, this isn't about getting more money from you. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I am amply supplied, and now that I have received from Epaphroditus, the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, most people invest have cash to spare. Okay, they didn't. This is what Paul says to them. He says, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, speaking specifically about Philippi here. And he says, out of the most severe trial." Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave us much, as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded for us with the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in accompanying God's will. Now, there's a very strange formula here. Let me just show you uh, up here in one of my amazing charts how this works, okay? So it says their overflowing joy plus extreme poverty. It kind of came out to rich generosity. And that seems like a strange equation, doesn't it? Severe trial. And they had you know, Paul had been beaten and put in, put in prison there in Philippi. And I'll tell you, it didn't get easier for them. If you identified with this group called the Way or the Cult of the Nazarenes, whatever people called it, you know, that made you a pariah in that culture. And they wouldn't hire you. They wouldn't do business with you. And sometimes people there were actually starving because there wasn't anything, any such thing as welfare. And if you were in their circumstances, you would likely think, you know, well, God certainly wouldn't be expecting anything from me because I'm poor, I don't have anything. And yet they pleaded with Paul for the privilege of helping others. Why? Well, they had faith. See, the deal is that 
people don't start giving because they have money, because they have all this extra money lying around. They think, I've got to do something with it. Maybe I'll throw a little bit you know, at what God's up to. People start giving out of joy. People give when they are not dependents, dependent on the contents of this little leather you know, temple for their joy and for their happiness. In fact, the stats have shown that people who make more money actually give less. I was looking at the stats a number of years ago, and it was for the state, if you're familiar with the United States, the state of Massachusetts where you know, the whole Kennedy clan is from. And they're, they're a wealthy, wealthy state. Like they're, in the, you know, they're like in the top four in terms of income of all the 50 states. And then they compared that with Mississippi, who is like number 49 out of 50 states in terms of how much they have or how much they don't have, I shouldn't have. You know that the people in Mississippi, Mississippi are like in the number one givers and the people in Massachusetts are like in the bottom level. And that's the way it always goes, you see. People who have a lot tend to give less. And that brings us to a comment that Paul makes here after thanking the Philippians for investment. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Well, it certainly wasn't here, right? Because these people were poor. So Paul is using RRSP, you know, language here. A few weeks ago uh, in the message on debt, I mentioned that wise people get interest working for them. And, you know, you can, if, when interest starts working, working against you, you know, you get into a bunch of consumer debt, man, it'll collapse your life. It's prop- so money multiplies when you invest it properly. That's why you, know, you have an investment counselor who's going to hopefully get, into, you know, get your money into some place that's going to actually grow it so that you have something you know, when you retire. Now, I want you to think about a different kind of currency, right? Paul's been dead for 1,956 years. He died around 64 A.D. The impact of, that Paul has had in those 1,000, almost 2,000 years is just phenomenal. Now, I'm sure he didn't see it, and they didn't see it back then. They didn't understand that people 2,000 years later would be talking about him and giving messages about him. But I'm telling you, he impacted the world. And it would be very, I think, conservative to say that he impacted the lives of, I would guess, a billion people. So let's just talk about cold, hard cash, okay? You know, let's say that you know, somebody from Philippi, they couldn't give much, but they could invest a dollar, okay? So we're talking, I don't have a loony with me, but they're investing a dollar in Paul's ministry, and that's all they could do, you know? So they, but the interest has accrued for 1,956 years. Now, with a really long-term investment like that, 2,000 years, I'm guessing you could probably get 10% interest on that money. Now, I did a little bit of calculation, uh, Guess how much, if you invested a dollar back then, guess how much that would be worth now after 1,956 years. So I just put it up here for you to take a look at. We're going to do multiple guesses here, okay? Um, One dollar, 10% interest, 1,956 years. How many of you think it would be 10 million? I can't see your hands, so it doesn't doesn't matter. How many of you think it would be 10 billion dollars? Can't see your hands. 10 trillion dollars. Can't see your hands. How about 10 quadrillion? That's what comes after trillion. How many of you think it would be none of the above? Well, none of the above would actually be the right answer because the answer to this is, and I'm just going to write it up here in the middle, okay? 1.31 with 80 zeros after it. Now, to give you an idea how big of a number that is, okay, uh, there are that many atoms in the universe, and my, one of my hairs, uh, which are thin these days, 
is like you know a million you know atoms across. That's how that's how much money. That is just a phenomenal amount of money. So when you add the interest to it, okay, and then you add you know all the impact that Paul has made and the lives he's changed and the way those people have changed other people's lives, like. It's just, you can't even begin to imagine. There's only one bank that can calculate that kind, of, uh, that kind of exponential interest. And it's not the bank of Philippi. That closed a long time ago. It's the bank of Jesus. Now, does that make sense of what, of what Paul's saying here? I'm looking for what might be credited to your account. That's how the mathematics of heaven work. Man, that's an investment you don't want to miss. This passage goes on to tell us what else happens when we give. First, giving meets the very real needs of very real people. We see that immediately here. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied, and now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. So he needed clothes, he needed food, he needed stuff to write with, and so on. So he got that, and that's, that's what happens. And that's the reason to give, even to charities nowadays, you know, uh, charities that benefit benefit animals. You know, I shudder to think of it. Cats. It doesn't take faith to see that people, you know, organizations need resources to keep the lights gone, to keep going on doing what they're doing. So that's part of it. But what we sometimes miss is God's perspective. See, God sees nickels and dimes and and blankets and food and writing materials, you know, normal stuff very differently. They are a fragrant offering, it says here, a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. That same kind of language is used to describe Jesus giving his life on a cross for all humanity. Now, here's the deal. You can't call it a sacrifice if it's not a sacrifice, right? It got real clear one day when Jesus was watching people give their money in the temple. And there were some you know, people there, they were coming in, you know, and they had a lot of money, and they were dropping some serious coin into the box. So, you know, if you hold it up hard, you know, high and you drop it all, it makes a big ka-ching, you know. Lots of money, you know, and people, ooh, ooh, look, did you see what he gave? But there's one person who gave, and, you know, what she gave just kind of, ding, ding, that was it. And Jesus noticed it. Jesus picked up on it. And this little woman, she gave like what were called mites. And there were two really, really small, thin copper coins, which was basically almost nothing. But Jesus' comment was, everybody else here is giving leftovers. Everybody else is just giving, you know, and they're not even going to feel it. She gave all that she had to live on. When God's children sacrifice, it moves his heart because he's our father. He sees that. I've always enjoyed the writings of John Ortberg. He's got a great sense of humor. Uh, He talks about a time when their family went to a beach in California, and so he left his wallet sitting on the beach blanket while he went out and played with the kids, okay? So he's got $60 allowance from his wife that's in there in the wallet, you know? And so when when he comes back, money's gone. Now, his plea was that, you know, he should be reimbursed that money from the family account. And she said, no, she said, leaving your wallet there on the beach blanket is like leaving a sign that says, here's some money. It's free for you. Take it, you know. I don't want it. So he apparently had quite a lengthy discussion about this. When they got home, uh, his five-year-old son, who'd watched this whole thing go down, ran up to his room, and he brought down a big bag of pennies that he'd been saving, you know. And he said, Dad, I want you to have these. And John said, no, Johnny. He said, they're yours. You keep them, you know. It'll be okay. He said, Dad, I want you to have them. I need to give them to you. 
And so having done that, that felt so good, you know. He went back up to his room, and he comes down with a bag full of nickels and dimes, you know, and then a bag of quarters. He says, I want you to have these, Dad. I need to give them to you. And John writes, then he did something I will remember for a long time. He came back downstairs a final time, and he brought with him $10. He'd been saving for, you know, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers doll and so on. And so, like, when you're five years old, I mean, $10 is like a down payment on a house. That's a lot of money. And yet there he stood, John says, with that $10 in his hand, putting it into my hand, saying, Dad, I want to give this to you. I need to give this to you. And John says, I got so choked up, he said, I was almost tempted to give it back to him. What he goes on to say is that, you know, that's what the heart of the Father is like when we sacrifice to gladly and cheerfully give to him and give to what he's up to. Now, I want you to think about something for a minute. The Bible's crystal clear on this issue of giving, okay? So this is not a mystery. This is not something that, you know, you find tucked away in the corner of the Bible, you know. It starts at the beginning with, with Abel's offering, and that kind of sets the tone for everything. Right on through, you know, Abraham giving his son uh, through Jesus' ministry to the, you know, the letters of Paul and Peter and, and James. The problem is, you see, that because of the demands of this little leather temple that we carry around, mammon, it's gotten twisted and perverted again and again. We're not the first ones to do that. It got so twisted and perverted by 500 B.C. that God's people were treating him like the family dog. And instead of making him the guest of honor, instead of doing what he said to do, which is to give him the first and best and that he would honor him, they were throwing him leftovers. No one serves leftovers to a king. And yet the word leftovers is sometimes what happens between us and God. You know, we visit the little leather temple, you know, and, and we, you know, get what we want out of it and so on. And then when we're all getting everything, when we're done getting everything that we want, you know, we think, wow, you know, I probably ought to give something to God. And he gets leftovers. We get what we want. We get what we think we need to make us happy. And he gets leftovers. And that's insulting, especially when he gave his best to us, when he gave his son to us so that we could have life. And to put it crassly, you see, God is not just in the business of saving our souls, saving this invisible part of us. He wants to save this too. He wants to save our wallets. Because if he doesn't, we will spend everything that we get on ourselves. And then when we're lying in a box someday, expect that people are going to stand up and call us generous. Most of us know what our biggest problem is, don't we? You know, so I asked the question, you know, so what's the big deal about giving our money away? What is it? Anybody know? I'll tell you what it is. Again, this is one of my amazing drawings. You're just going to be amazed by this, okay? It's fear. Real problem with giving is fear. It's, you know, it's kind of the revenge of the wallet gods. We're afraid that we won't have anything left, you know, give it away and, and that all of a sudden God forgets all of his promises and then we're just kind of left on our own. Now, see, the marketing lie is that, first of all, that money is what gives us happiness. And that if you have enough money, you'll buy security and you'll, you know, you'll seem successful and you have all these things. And so what happens is then when it comes to giving our money, so money equals happiness. So we think, when I give my money, I'm giving away my own happiness. I can't afford to give away any of my happiness. And, and the Bible says the difference. It says that it's when we learn how to give that we find joy. And it's out of our joy that we give. 
right after talking about worry, Jesus addressed this. This is what he says. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes in and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And we've seen this all through Jesus' ministry. Remember when Jesus, you know, this little boy came and gave Jesus his bag lunch? I mean, from the outward part of it, it would look like, you know, he's not going to have lunch that day. He's going to have to fast because, you know, everybody else has gotten a crumb of his lunch. So this is called the bag lunch principle. He comes in and he gives this to Jesus, you know. So Jesus finds, you know, five loaves of bread, you know, and a few fishes and so on. And then he takes it and he multiplies. And not only does this kid get fed everything he wants to eat, there's 5,000 other people, some estimates say as many as 20,000 people that get to eat that day. That's the bag lunch principle. If you keep it in the bag, if you keep it for yourself, it stays small. And it may feed you, but that's who it'll feed. It's when it gets out of the bag, when it gets into Jesus' hands, that it really counts. Paul gives us something here that could be called the 419 principle. And let me just read Philippians 419. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glory, glorious riches in Christ Jesus. All your needs. Let me ask you, what are your needs this morning? Do you have any needs? He says, all your needs. And I'm guessing that he's including more than just money and stuff. Think about, you know, Jesus, what it means, what the glorious riches are of Jesus. What do you think Jesus' net worth is? I think it would be pretty hard for us to imagine, right? God is promising, you see, that, that when we open our hearts and we do what he is calling us to do, love God and love others, well, that changes everything. It's like it unlocks this vault in heaven. And believe me, I'm not, you know, doing this whole thing, you know, you give to God and he'll give you as much back. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we have to, if we want to please God, we have to understand what it means to love him and love others with our money. You maybe have, if you've been hanging around the olive branch at all, you you may have seen this back in the youth room. You see L-G-L-O, and that's what Jesus said. He said, if you do these things, two things, two commands, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, love others as yourself. He said, you will please God, and you will make a difference with your life. World system says that money equals happiness. And so you see, you you have to decide who you're going to believe. And it's possible to believe in Jesus and put your trust in him, but then believe the whole philosophy of the world system, that money is what equals happiness, which is true. Now, why don't you make the 419 principle, the management principle for your life? Why not? That God is the ultimate one who's responsible for your financial welfare. And as you honor him and, and cheerfully give, as you open up a generous heart, you're, you know, it says, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Let me give you a for, for example on that. Jesus said, you know, as I mentioned, that if we love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love others as, we self, as ourselves, that we will fulfill what God asks. Now, here's the question. Can you love God? God, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, can you actually do that and never invest in what he's up to in this world? 
keep all your money for yourself? I don't think you can. Can you love others as you love yourself and never give away any money? Keep it all for yourself. I think that's pretty hard to do. And the question you have to ask is, does the way I spend my money reflect what I say that I believe? That I believe that the church is the hope of the world. That I believe that eternity is real. That I believe that every person has an eternal soul that God loves and values and treasures and gave his son for. Is that, does the way I give, does the way I use my money reflect that? Now, I realize that we're all different stages of this, okay? So, here's what I want to ask. There are two scenarios, okay? And that's one that we bow our knee and we offer what we have to God as the giver of everything. And the other one is that we pretty much offer God to the mammon God, the taker, the wallet God. How does how you spend your money reflect that? I just want to tell you from personal experience, you know, you've heard the saying, you can't outgive God, and I, I would dare you to try it. Because you see, you know, I didn't learn, I told you a couple weeks ago, I didn't learn a whole lot of stuff, you know, in terms of financial management and things like that from my parents. But I'll tell you what they did teach me. They did teach me that God provides. They did teach me the concept of generosity. They taught me that when it seems like I'm running out of money and I don't have anything left, that God will provide. And I'm telling you, it's true. It's true. That's how I've lived my life. And you need to know that when this 419 principle says all your needs, that's what it means. How many of you would say, you know what, I need some wisdom for raising my kids? Most hands would go up. If you've ever had kids, you would raise your hands. How about healing? Healing of your emotions. How about joy? How about meaning? Anybody need some insight? You're facing a problem. You're not sure exactly how to deal with it. Insight? How about contentment? How about patience? Anybody need patience? I do. Strength, courage. So why don't you give it a shot? I mean, what could you possibly lose? that God is the one who's ultimately responsible for your financial welfare and that you will live with open hands, that you will live with open hands. Now I realize again that we're all at different stages of this, and I just want to encourage you simply to move forward on this. You know, it's possible you've never tried it. For whatever reason, you know, there's lots of different reasons, but you've never tried it. Maybe you're pretty new at this and so on. So, the point is to start, not to go from zero to 100, you know, but to start, start giving. See what happens. Maybe you've been inconsistent, you know, like when it comes to giving, you know, you've kind of looked at your wallet and said, eh, it doesn't look too good this week, and so I'm going to wait, and then there's three more weeks, eh, still not too good, I think I'm going to wait, and then, you know, you give, and so on. So if, you're, if you've been inconsistent, why don't you try doing it regularly? Just say, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to give every week, I'm just going to do it. It's possible to get actually grumpy about it, you know, like you're paying your taxes. Ah, give God what he asked for and so on. You know, I don't want to sabotage my future. And so you, you just kind of hand it over even though you're a little bit grumpy and angry about it. So ask God to give you a joyful heart so that, so that the generosity comes from your joy. Maybe, maybe you've been safe. You know, this has just become a kind of routine. You know, you write the check. You don't even think much about it, you know. You just do it. So why don't you risk? Try something new and see what God does. 
in case you didn't know, there's another Ken Davis out there, okay? There's a Ken Davis barbecue sauce. I know that's not the one I'm talking about. So there's this guy uh, who's famous. He's really funny. And uh, so I, I want to read a story that he tells, you know, uh, one of his books. And then I have a challenge, and then we're done, okay? So let me read the story. Ken Davis. Pastor friend of mine, Joel Morgan, planning on visiting missionaries in Eastern Europe. He asked friends who traveled in that area what he ought to pack. Many helpful suggestions, but everyone agreed that he ought to bring some extra food. While staying in rural villages with no electricity and no running water, they might be forced to go without meals. It would be wise to have some easily packed snacks on hand for emergency rations. One missionary warned Joel to bring more than he'd need. Some of his supplies might be confiscated by customs. Joel asked himself some questions as he wandered through a grocery store. Who wouldn't, you know, what wouldn't catch the eye of a customs agent? What won't spoil? What will serve as an energy boost? And he whispered this prayer. Lord, you know the things I'll need and the things that will make it through customs. I'm just going to walk down these aisles trusting you to prompt me to select the right items. Instantly, his eyes fell on a case of Reese's peanut butter cups. He put a king-sized pack of them in his cart. Farther down the aisle, he was drawn to a pack of tapioca pudding snacks. And finally, he scooped up some cans of fruit cocktail and some gum and some hard candy. Surely, he thought, these items will tie me over if I get hungry. On the fourth day of the trip, Joel arrived in Timisoara, Romania, and he would spend several days with a couple who'd labored for 14 months there. Family had been sent there by national missions organizations, but for all practical purposes, it had been forgotten. They faced harsh conditions. Heat and electricity were often turned off for days. Joel and his team were the first English-speaking people the missionaries had seen in six months. The simple opportunity to talk to someone was cause for celebration, and their two teenage daughters were starving for anything American. Joel spent some time chatting and praying with the missionaries when he suddenly thought about the survival goodies he'd purchased for himself more than a week before. He had an idea. It was only October, but why not use these snacks to celebrate an early Christmas? He retrieved his backpack with all the goodies securely hidden inside. He sat down with the family in their living room, and Joel took on the role of Santa Claus and played it to the hilt. He asked the two teenage girls, if you could have anything from the United States, what would it be? In unison, they chimed out, candy. What kind, Joel asked, confident they'd take anything he offered. Then the mother chimed in, the girls love Reese's peanut butter cups, but they're not available in this part of the world. With a lump in his throat, Joel reached into the backpack and pulled out the king-sized pack he'd snuggled into the country. Custom agents do like peanut butter cups. Girls jumped up and down, laughing as they held their new treasure between them. Joel wiped a tear from his eye, and he asked the mother, what item from back home would brighten your day? Now, this was a risk. What if she, you know, wanted, say, a side of beef? But with one miracle in the bag already, what could go wrong? I miss fruit, the mother replied a bit sheepishly, especially citrus. Joel reached into Santa's bag and extracted a can of fruit cocktail and a tin of mandarin oranges. Now everybody was laughing and wiping away tears of joy. After a time of celebration and amazement, Joel turned to the father. The backpack was nearly empty, and he considered removing the few items and asking the father to make a, a selection. Two out of three miracles ain't bad, so why press his luck? But something deep in Joel's soul shouted, go for it. 
before he could argue with God, he heard himself ask, Gary, what's your favorite dessert? And Gary, this wonderful servant of God, smiled and said, it's something no one else in the world likes, tapioca pudding. Joel nearly injured himself pulling the pudding from the pack and then racing across the room to show him the super four snack pack of topiac tapioca pudding. God had prompted him to buy seven days before, 4,000 miles away. What followed was praise and worship in its purest form. Nine people crowded into a tiny living room in Romania, weeping and singing praises to God. And that day they gained a new appreciation of Philippians 4.19. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now you might be thinking, oh, that's a neat little story, you know, brings a tear to my eye. But it's the truth of how God works so specifically in circumstances. You wouldn't believe it. And I want to encourage you to do some homework. It's a faith exercise. Take this little wall at this little leather temple where most of the people in our culture worship or something else that represents, you know, what you have, whether it's your bank account records or whether, you know, it's, it's your ledges or your, maybe your cell phone or whatever, and hold it up to God and just say, God, it's yours, all of it. I refuse to worship the God who lives in this little temple. Why don't you try it? There may be some other things that you've had that you have to do too. You may have to confess your worries to God. You may have to confess to him, like I've had to, a little bit of coveting, you know, some of the things that don't necessarily relate to that little leather temple. Maybe you'll have to confess some greed. But as best as you can, hold this up and say, God, it's yours. It's yours. And then listen. And the Spirit of God will guide you in what you need to do. Imagine what God could do through all of us who call ourselves, you know, within the range of the olive branch part of this church. What if we just radically lived out this principle, this 419 principle? That we lived how Jesus described money and how Jesus described investment, not Wall Street or Bay Street or anything else. See, I believe the God of this universe stands in front of us, and I believe, you know, he looks us in the eye. He says, you know, you've invested in a house. You've invested in a car. You've invested in RRSPs. You've invested in your kids. You've invested, you know, in makeup, and you've invested, you know, in Tesla. Why not try investing in what I'm up to in this world and see what I do? And finally, God who owns all the wealth of the universe, promises that he will meet all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I'm going to hold this up. I've used this probably too many times, but you understand the principle of the teapot, right? That you put the tea bag in there. If I can get the lid off someplace here, get it off here. Okay. Anyways, you take the lid off, you fill it up with hot water and with a tea bag, and you let it steep for a little bit, but while it's still hot, you pour it out. And then you fill it up again with another tea bag. While it's hot, you pour it out. And you fill it up, and you pour it out, and you fill it up, and you pour it out, and you fill it up, and you pour it out. That's how it works. And I think what God would say to you and me is, you know what? I'll be in charge of filling it up if you'll just be the spout, if you'll see that it gets to 
where it needs to get to. And I'll help you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your power. I thank you, God, that you keep your promises. We keep some of ours. You keep all of yours. And you've promised that you would meet our needs according to your riches in Christ Jesus. And so we're just going to take you at your word. We're going to try it. We're going to do what you ask us to do. And we're going to take this little strip of leather that we call our wallet or whatever it is in our lives that represents our money and offer it to you because you're the king of all kings. You're the Lord of lords. You're the one that controls our destiny. And you're the one who's able to use what we give to you to make a difference in this world, which is what we all want to do. Amen.